0: And we're talking about, we're talking about um, the CRT, critical race theory, how you know, that is that is course, going to play a role in how libraries are being uh, looked at. You know, so we talk about you know freedom of press, all the freedoms we have in this country, and so see what's happening now, particularly around books. And you both being advocates for reading and writing, uh, this is a very uh, interesting time, and we better pay attention. To pay folks. hey uh we are we are here and so uh is uh Bakari Kirwana. what's up brother
1: how you doing today
2: yep. hey Bakari how you doing
1: hey Tiffany how are you
2: good to see you it's been a long time good to been see you a minute I know <laughs> <laughs> we don't grew old okay
1: <laughs> yeah older
2: <laughs> we was kids out here <laughs>
1: <laughs> older
0: Ohio. that's all yes. Yeah, so we're, kind of, we're glad to have, have you on, it's, it's, it's Black Music Month and uh, this project, with me and Tiffany have been working uh, together. Uh, how long has it been now, that, Tiffany? That's been a year, Hattie.
2: Next month will and August will be the first year. Okay, so year. we definitely got to do a one-year celebration, something
0: wild and funky and crazy uh, for this project. But uh, the project Bacardi is designed uh, to uh, uh, let young brothers understand that there's a literary space for them out here. They can come to uh, this video block and, and, and leave it, leave block and see uh, books and information that is going to uh, empower them. And that's uh, uh, why I'm so happy, Tiff can to give you a part of it in you know, her rich and deep knowledge of books for and about uh, black children. And so this is focused on black boys so. Uh, I'm excited about what's happening. And she asked me to be a part of it. So Hey, we're we're kind of working it. And one part of it is what we're about to do now is have uh, conversations with people like yourself who clearly understand the importance of uh, Black literature. And uh, at this point in time, doing uh, uh, Black Music Month. I almost thought that people forgot about Black Music Month. They haven't seen everything else being promoted, but it's like, y'all, what's up with promoting Black
1: Music Month? Well, people distracted with uh, Juneteenth, I think. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: Juneteenth,
2: uh, a whole lot of other stuff going on know, in the world. Five months, you know, all of that. White supremacists,
0: Right, yeah. exactly.
1: Uh, the making of a Nazi regime. Yes. Okay. Democrats sit- sitting on the sideline watching it happen, making like they mad. <laughs> Pretending, pretending over nonsense,
0: pretending. So, you know, uh, Chip, you want to go and delve into it? You know, as we um, uh, kind of uh, have a, a conversation with Bakari about Black Music Month, I know, Bakari, I want to talk to you a little bit you know, about, about how we kind of connected and how work with Third World Press. But since we're talking about Black music, I, I told Tiffany we can go ahead and really just get into it. We all love some hip-hop music. Yes. But I'm from the south, so I'm a soul music man. So, mm. uh, I'm gonna let you get, let, let you two uh start some conversation about the work that you've done over the years, excellent work. Um, I was trying to pull my books on my shelf, I need to remind me to organize my bookshelf, and I was trying to find your books and pull them, and uh, I don't know what I found for white white kids of no, hip hop. Okay. Got, all, right. all these books <laughs> yeah. all these books in my house and I ain't them. I need to organize them, they, they oh, be organize them because I got hip hop generation and others that I need to uh, and rap, or, uh rap this game, mm-hmm. rap in the pull that I just couldn't find them. You know I, I
1: should have looked
0: for earlier today.
1: I got some new stuff too.
0: Yeah. Get all your new you stuff. Got out. This
1: Democracy. Nice. Yes. Yeah. Unchained. And uh, the Rakim book. Rakim book, I have it here, but I don't have it close enough to grab. Let's talk about to... that. Well, let's, yeah. Tell us about that project, please. Oh, my goodness. It was an enormous project. It, it came from out of nowhere. Um, but when I finally connected with Rakim, it was just a good marriage. Um, it was a history that I knew because I grew up. You know, living that history. I'm a few years older than Rakim, believe it. Or not. <laughs> Rakim was in high school when he when his first songs were released. He was already getting ready to go to college, but he had not yet graduated high school. I believe it was his junior year going into his senior year. Um the first few songs blew up so crazy that um they had opportunities to go on tour, uh, him and Eric B. And so he was presented with the obstacle of dropping out of high school, which of course his mother didn't want him to do. Uh, he also was interested in playing football in college. And I believe he had gotten a, um, he was on his way to, to college to play football. Uh, and then the rap thing just kind of uh, jumped off. And so that um, a part of the the story, but we, we, we linked up, we started, um, Uh, with some intense conversation, he wanted a, a, the publisher wanted a memoir about his life in the music industry. That's not what he wanted though. Mm -hmm. He wanted a memoir about his creative process. And so I tried to strike a balance between what the publisher wanted and what he wanted and, and gave them a little bit of both. Uh, and so that was kind of, um, but it was just, it was such a rich um, project. He, Rockham knew what he wanted to say, but he needed, he needed a glass. He didn't know he needed a glass. He needed a glass to put it into, you know what I mean? And so that was really my role. My role was to give him a canister to fit his brilliance into. He didn't need no, he didn't need any yeah. help. Telling, <laughs> he didn't need any help telling his story. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Um, he told the story of, uh, flawlessly because he lived it and he was passionate about it. Um, but we just kind of went back and forth, you know, just kind of digging deeper. Um, so he talked about the creative process. We wanted to make sure music, his music was prominently in the book. And so there was a lot of conversation about, you know, the creative process around particular songs, mm-hmm. uh, his creative process in, in general. And it was just, it was, it was, um it was magical. I bet. Yeah, yeah, it was magical. I, I was honored to be a part of it. Um, and um, it just, it was just a magical process because I, I, I lived that political history. And to be able to, Uh, And Rakim was such an important figure for us. You know, I graduated from high school in in 84. His first music came out in 86. Um, And so I was just a junior in college when that stuff was coming out. And um, I remember all that stuff like it was yesterday. And we both grew up in Long Island. So we both had, we also ah. had like that Long Island history and I knew the terrain. So that also made it easier. So like I knew how long it took to get from Manhattan to where he lived. You know what I'm saying? I knew the different highways that you could take. And so we wrote all of that um, that context uh, in, in, into the book. So, so
2: you, I was gonna say, what did you learn about his early, his young life? Because I think a big part of this is some of the conversation that I'm interested in is we know a lot of our young brothers are interested in becoming MCs, you know, and and you know, there's a space for that because there's a voice, but we have to funnel that, you know, like in and and create context for that voice. But like when you look at somebody like the R, like what was his young life like? I mean, he has the a background, he's Muslim, he's um his rhyme scheme is incredible, his voice like where does all that knowledge come yeah. from? Was he a reader? Like what was, what was his situation? Yeah. You said he was going to college. We, we don't hear this. Right.
1: right, right, right. So he was a reader. Um, I think some of the, so, because once he got into the 5% nation, knowledge was just essential. And so he's studying the Quran, he's studying the Bible. He's studying other religious texts. He's studying the Torah. Um, and a lot of that is coming into, um, the writing, but you know, the 5% nation and their teachings, um, prominent in, in, in his, in his work. And also his, pa- his, his parents, he was from a really strong family. His father was, um, into music and had a music collection, like a lot of MCs, mm-hmm. their, their first real orientation towards music was their parents' music collection. And so his parents would, his parents would have get togethers and, the, and the, um, their friends would come over and they would play all this old music. And so like, he's listening to this music as a kid. The other thing was his mom had a, um, had a friend who was like her best friend and he called her his aunt. I don't believe she was related to him though. And this sister um, is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So she was a musician and her orientation towards music deeply influenced him. Um, and so one of the things that he t- wanted to make sure was present in the book was she had a routine for how she would get dressed and prepared on the day of a show. And he, he brought that into his routine. Um, the other thing about Rakim that was fascinating was he was a saxophone player as a, as a young person. You know, back in our day, yeah, you play instruments. I mean, it wasn't you couldn't even have awesome. a
2: bridge without a saxophone, That's right? right.
1: <laughs> That's right. And so Rakim was a saxophone player. His older brother was also a saxophone player, one of his older brothers, and one of his older brothers also was a I think a keyboardist, and he was and he went on tour with Curtis Blow. So he had all of this kind of musical stuff happening around him, and he brought all that into the music. Other thing that happened with him that was fascinating was what he talks about in the book how he first um ended up with a producer who was very knowledgeable I, god i can't think of what his name is right now at the top of my head but this producer and, and sound engineer taught him a lot so he talks about one time when um i think it was a grammys and and eric b left to go to the grammys they still had a song to finish so he talks about how he actually mixed this last song, but a lot of that orientation came from, you know, spending close time with this with this, uh, with this this producer. Also, Eric B had a brother who would come into the studio with them. And he really trusted Eric B's brother to kind of like, you know, you'd be like, yo, that song is done. Like, you you don't need to do nothing else. <laughs> and so he kind of looked to him. So he talks about that also. So all of that and more, um, but back to the saxophone thing, He was fascinated with the saxophone and he was fascinated with jazz music and he was fascinated with John Coltrane. And one of the things he talks about is is that John Coltrane once uh, had played a note that was basically playing two notes at once and no one else had ever done this. And so that was the beginning of the way he started to think about rapping. How could he rap like John Coltrane played the saxophone, and that went into his orientation, which really transformed the um, the, the the lyrical uh, process of rap music. It was a combination of that, as well as a combination of um, of of um, the five percent nation and the emphasis on knowledge. To the point in which a lot of people don't know this, but Chuck D and and um, and Public Enemy were finishing an album. I think they had finished it. And, and, and then he heard the album by, uh, Eric, uh, paid in full. He went back and said, we got to do the whole album over again. <laughs> this is a tough Cause, Cause he yeah. said the, the,
2: the face of hip hop yeah. has been transformed. What, what I see is interesting is because I was just reading this article about Nas or whatever, is that they have this jazz background. They have this, cultural identity that's very much affirmed and you know so like that gave them like a great foundation to like go out they were writers they were readers they were like they had a um a sense of history and self that was kind of like a springboard for everything they did and I know like um, Nas was influenced by, by Rakim's you know, style and everything. Absolutely. So it's, it's very interesting to see these similarities in that era, because even if you look at like De La Soul and Tribe and everybody else, all, all our parents' records was, is you know, all that jazz, all that right. that we had, like you could see the influence in there. Cause I was like, oh my dad, there's what heirs, you know, like there's this, you could, you know, inevitably that's our, our um, parents' music influence is what played out on us. What does it look like for for like us? Like my kids listen to, you know, like all these hip hop artists, like how did that play into where we are now? Do you know?
1: Yeah, That's a good question. I got to think about that. You made me think about something else while you were talking. Speak um, on it. <laughs> one of the other things that Rakim talks about in the book was that his father was very witty with language. And so he would say things, that were just very, very witty, very creative. And he brought that into the rhyming as well. It's an important point, you know, he talked about um, his father once telling him something like, you know, he's like, dad, I need some money, blah, blah, blah. blah. He's like, well, you better squeeze that money to the grain, come on. (laughs) (laughs) So he he talks about these things that his father would say. His father just had a way with, with, with words also. So um it, you mentioned Nas. Nas emerges in ninety, what is it? 90, is it ninety-one or ninety-four? I don't 94?
2: know. Like, I don't remember. What year was Illmatic? Let me look here. I thought it was uh let me look here real quick. I can't is remember it 91? I think it is 91 for
1: some reason, but I could be wrong.
2: It couldn't have been 93. It had to have been 91.
1: Maybe it was 94. Let me see. Um, because I think that. yeah maybe it was not maybe it was earlier than that maybe it was not
2: well it says release date 94 so
1: there you go okay 94 I thought it was 94 and the reason I thought it was 94 was that was the time I was preparing to go to the source magazine Mm -hmm. so um it was very prominent in my mind um Nas was one of the artists that I actually wrote about um, in in pitching to the source, why I should be the editor.
2: <laughs> put, a book, put a bookmark into and explain later on about what it was like to hear that album off the rip for the first time.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's so yeah, like- so 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 Nas definitely himself, you know, his own five percent journey was influenced by the lyricism of of, of Rockem and many others, Busta Rhymes, um, who's also a five yeah. percent um uh mob deep their their lyricism influenced by um the the wu-tang clan so it's a long history of artists um in, uh, uh brand Nubian, poor righteous teachers <laughs> all these right. artists were right. influenced by what um what not what uh rakim rakim was doing and, and then others who weren't five percenter but nation of islam leaning like ice cube and um, and Public Enemy and others. But you said the music, I'm trying to capture this question. <laughs>
2: yeah, because did we mess up, right? Because we we had this great depth of, of information. I mean, we had R&B, blues, yeah. soul, we had all this. And then we was so hip hop, like, is this us? Is well, this our blueprint? I
1: mean, I think the other thing that we had that people often forget, what dovetailed with the 5% knowledge that came out of the Nation of Islam and some of which came out of the black power movement was also the uh, Afrocentricity movement, not just within the academy, but also within the street, which gave rise to black studies departments. Mm -hmm. So that was happening. You had people selling books on the street. You had the African people buying African medallions and wearing them in hip hop. So all of that African centered consciousness that came out of the black power movement began to work its way into hip-hop. People like Queen Latifah, which, was all, which also came shortly after Rakim, I wanna say her first album was 80, uh, late 80s, 87, 88, or 89, somewhere in there. Um, um, and so she also is another person. So we had all of these influences that are coming out of the Black Power Movement in addition to the music. And and for this is the other thing, our generation of hip-hop music was a generation that came um, the the basis of most of the early hip hop albums were songs we already knew. Yeah. So so it wasn't it wasn't like we were yeah. hearing this. I mean that was a part of his power. Yeah. So when you heard um, you know Encore by Cheryl Lynn, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Or uh, whatever, Kanye sampled uh, a Khan. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Through the through the through the fire, his song was through the White Light. these were these are songs we knew. So, or when we heard James uh, James Brown beat, we knew this music. Yes. So uh, when we heard um, Cameo, or we heard um, uh, M2M, mm-hmm. right? This is music that we knew already. <laughs> That's true. That's so, so true. It wasn't a leap. We were already dancing to this music in the oh. in the basement parties in the um, in the in the nightclubs. Kind of, we were still kind of young. We were we were too young almost to be in the clubs. We were sneaking in. No. <laughs> but we were I wasn't me, that was not me.
2: My dad's watching. That wasn't me. That was them.
1: <laughs> right, we were dancing <laughs> to this music at birthday parties, at graduation oh. parties. At weddings the in the park. That's right, and it was the it was DJ driven. So yeah. what we saw happen was young people starting to get on the mic and rap over these over the hooks to these beats. You know what I'm saying? Over, over the over the uh, uh the break beat, what what uh, DJ Cool Herc isolated as a as as his contribution to hip hop. We would then we're dancing already to this music. We hear that break beat and the MCs at the parties are starting to rap over this. And so all of this kind of dovetails into where we are. So I think that's something that was different. By the time we get to the more contemporary era, you have a whole lot of legalese has entered into the game. And you got to get sample clearance and all this other stuff. People start making their own beats so they can avoid you know, having to get the sample clearance and all this stuff. And I think all of that kind of um, uh, has, has plays a role. I don't I don't think that it and, and also the music industry becomes more centered on making money. That's true. Like this is the thing: the music industry could make money off of hip hop in the beginning because they didn't invest that much money in it. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like they would they would invest very little, and the artists did all the work, and then they made this huge windfall of cash. Because they already paid out so little to begin with. They weren't really paying for all this other stuff. But as it it becomes more of an industry, they're paying for more and more stuff. And so now the whole whole formula uh, is is forced to change. Mm -hmm. Um, And so also, you start to get a different type of artist. And what Jay-Z said when I interviewed him, he's like, look, most people... Most people, when they heard of true MC like a Rakim, they knew they couldn't do that. Mm. But when they heard, you know, just somebody making some noise while the song was, (laughs) they're like, well, I can't, I can't rap, but I can do that. That's what those were his words. I can do that. And so I feel like we started to get this kind of dumbed down you know, and I really feel we've moved, we moved away from that. Like there are fundamentals of hip hop that were a part of the definition of hip hop that are no longer the definition of hip hop for a new generation. One of which was lyricism.
2: But one uh, of the, I think yeah. the Beastie, and granted it's the Beastie Boys, but one of, one of them was saying that like, you know, it has to innovate itself. Where do we support them versus where do we say y'all need to maybe look back like you know, like we had a music history, like maybe y'all need to look back at some of this. So where's the support for them? And then yet, yeah. where's the the mentorship of hey, look at this? You know, like look at this over here. Maybe this can add to this.
1: I feel like there's a little bit of all of that going on. Um, there's a book out right now by um, uh, Wise Intelligent, one of the artists with Poor Righteous Teachers. The book is called Three Fifths of an MC playing on the three fifths of a man, (laughs) (laughs) which I think is brilliant. I mean, the brother was always brilliant, but I mean, he knocked it out the park with that. And then um, Talib has a new book out called Vibrate Higher. Mm -hmm. And in this book, he talks a lot about a lot of his own history and his own evolution within hip hop and his evolution as an MC, his evolution within music and his, his history of his family and but he also talked. He also talks about what you're saying. We've got to give the music the chance to evolve, and not feel like we can hold it in a box. And so, Raheem, I mean, I'm sorry, Talib says, you know, he listens to a lot of the stuff. He's like, you know, some of it's good. You gotta, you gotta expand your ear. But what's to me, as I look at it, and you know, I'm working on a book on Nipsey Hussle now, and I'm looking at these evolutions within the music and and the music that we um the what we love about hip-hop is not what this generation of young people love about hip-hop and i think that we that's a that's an important starting point they don't love what we love we love the lyricism we love the intellect we love the wittiness we love the originality all of those things and we love the beats All of those things were a part of hip hop for us. And I feel like as this generation, as a new generation has evolved and as the music has changed, the changes within the music industry, the changes within um, hip hop journalism, which used to talk back and engage the art in a different kind of way, the moving of a lot of that stuff to the periphery. Um, the rise of different ways of making music, selling music, selling music online, people buying singles through live streams instead of buying entire albums, like the concept album drove hip hop in our our era. The rise and evolution of the mixtape, all of these things affect the way in which music is now heard. And I also think that for our generation, hip hop was an end all be all. We saw hip hop first, many of us in the park. We didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't a mainstream media yeah. manifestation. It was off the radar culture. It was culture that we lived. I remember the first, one of the first times I got on the turntables was my cousin who lived two doors down from me is playing music in his garage mm. and I can hear the music and I walked down to his house and I see he's got these turntables. Like Like that was my first, like up close experience, you know, with hip hop. And I feel like for a generation that's not experiencing hip hop like that, they're experiencing it as a mainstream cultural phenomenon that's global. It's just a different reality for them. And I think we got to give them room to experience it, how they experience. The hope, I think, is that they'll invent something new. I think that they kind of already have, but they still call it hip hop which is a wow. another, topic. <laughs> that's another topic wow. for another day.
0: <laughs> wow, Uh-oh. Uh-oh. okay, Uh-oh. okay. So, that's,
2: so it's it's beyond the four elements, right? Or five, some people say, you know, like, so it's beyond that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I
1: You're think right. that they've created, I think they've created something different. I think that they're able to, um, like, we don't really see, a hip-hop artist, in my opinion, that's really rock star level, mainstream American culture until Tupac. But they like- We started started to see a little bit with, I think we started to see it a little bit with um, Run DMC, Mm -hmm. but I think it it was something different. By the time Tupac, I mean, we started to see a little bit with Snoop, then Snoop had the murder case. But then with Tupac, It's really, hip-hop is really mainstream culture. And you got a generation of young, even white kids that are like, this is fascinating. You know what I'm saying? Like the the level of fascination with Tupac, in my opinion, is radically different than Run DMC because Run DMC wasn't as in-your-face
2: radical. you think it would have been Run DMC (laughs) (laughs) because I don't, I see a lot of young folks reference Tupac. I don't see it in the music. They're like on some next level black funk craft work type you know what i mean like yeah. i can't explain it but it's like some techno computer generated sounds and things you know what it's i mean a, yeah
1: yeah it's a it's a it's a lot of a lot of different things that are going on you know you got now music being sold on uh tick and and that was never re- like like you didn't have you didn't have hip hop songs, quote unquote, breaking on anything nice. other than somebody within hip hop said it was hot. But so all so everything, the whole the whole playbook, I think, has been rewritten. And I think just think that there's, people are experiencing it different and we got to let them experience it how they experience it. Um, but I do think that we have to be more uh, brash about saying this ain't the hip hop that we grew up with, but y'all Where call it hip-hop. Right. not
2: what we call hip-hop. Where does literature have a place in this? Like, how can we mm. look at our literature? How can we look at your stuff you've written? How yeah. do we bring that to them as, how does this, you know, um, how does this resonate with you? I mean, even if it's we reject this, I mean, write about rejecting it. You know what I mean? But at yeah. least give me some yeah. examples. You know what I mean? Yeah, me I mean, yeah i I feel like
1: one of the things that happened with us as a generation is that we were so um we were so centered on recognizing hip hop as youth culture that we continued to let it be youth culture, even when we, we weren't the youth anymore <laughs> yeah. so I feel like I feel like that's one of the things that happened like and I also feel like. We as a people are so always anxious for a new generation of activism to emerge mm. that sometimes, as it is emerging, we we are not as critical of it as we should be. Mm. And I feel like that is a mistake that we all made with Black Lives Matter. Um, and and I think some of the problems that has happened with this with that movement, you know, is a result of that. You know what I'm saying? Like Just play a little you know, more.
2: See, I'm sorry. Can you explain that a little more? (laughs) Well,
1: I'm just, I I think that I think that if you're going to come into a a black conscious movement, Mm. you should be nurtured, I believe, into those movements. You can't teach yourself the the history of movements. I mean, you can, Mm -hmm. you can study the history of movements, but studying is only one part of it. The other part of it is being in conversation with with elders who who lived it. And I feel like when you have that disconnect and and there' then you kind of when you have a disconnect from elders you kind of don't have accountability did I feel we like,
2: do that did they did our elders do that did we do that did our youth do well, that i'm talking'm
1: I'm, well i'm talking i think it's a i think it's a combination i mean if if young people don't want to be mentored you can't you can't force yourself on them <laughs> so, but I think that if you are if you're a young person and you're engaging in an activist movement. You have to recognize that our movement goes back, you know, to our arrival in this country. Mm -hmm. And you have to understand the roots on which you're standing. And you got to understand the movement intricately, because if you don't understand these movements intricately, you're going to make huge, huge, huge mistakes. And I think that's, something that we're seeing. I mean, this is, I mean I, I don't want to get into it too much. Right. I feel I
2: just, you on that. But I kind of we talk about
1: movements, because why don't you talk to the audience when you say movement, what
0: movements are you talking about specifically?
1: I mean, it, we go all the way back to to the the movements uh, of Nat Turner and Denmark, Denmark Denmark Bessie. I mean these were movements of people trying to get free. You go back to Garvey, the Garvey years you could go back to the Niagara movement. You go back to the, the, the civil rights and the Black Power movement. All of these were, were movements created by a specific generation to say this is the reality that we're facing in our time and this is how we're going to resist it, which is why I think the Black Lives Matter movement got so much support from the older generation because people felt like it was time. I mean, we, we created a hip-hop political movement but it wasn't a mass movement, you know what I mean? And, and I feel like a part of why we didn't create a mass movement or we were, weren't were thinking about organizing in a way to create a mass movement was because we came of age in the, in the shadow of the civil rights and the black power. They hated <laughs> hip hop, say it, they hated
2: hip hop. We, well, yeah. we had, our elders were against, you know, Absolutely. like a lot of what we were, you know, like Absolutely. trying to use that vehicle to continue yeah. that
1: vehicle, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But I also I also think that we were operating in the shadow of such a huge transformative movement. And it, it was difficult at first for us to imagine a movement that didn't look like those movements, but then we began to do that. And so I, I think that that I guess that's what I mean by these movements. And I what I'm seeing now, you know with some of this implosion of the Black Lives Matter uh, 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 movement, you know, in terms of just, I mean, just, I just think a series of mistakes. I mean, the Black Lives Matter movement often cited the Black Panthers and the Black Power movement as their precedent. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's so many lessons from those movements to be learned that could have taken them uh, uh, in, in, in a better direction. I remember having conversations with Geronimo Pratt. And um, I I did an interview with Geronimo Pratt when he first got out of prison after 27 years. um, I went out to California and sat down with him in Marin City where he was staying. And at one point we're sitting there talking and people come up to him trying to get his autograph. And he's like, you know, that's not what we do in in our movement. Like we're not supposed to be (laughs) celebrities. You know what I'm saying? So, like, just that we we you know the moment that we're in in America as a society with social media and everybody trying to have a platform and every like all of that stuff, I think, is diminishing our capacity to organize at the level that we need to. Well, why are not we? Very quickly,
0: I just want to say very quickly I want to say, hey, this is Patrick Oliver. I'm on here with Tiffany Farno, you uh, on uh, the conversation. We are here with Bakari Kirwana, author, activist. Uh, we have a discussion about Black History Month. Go ahead, Tiffany. Black Music uh-huh. Month. Black, Black Year
2: Music Year. Month. Yes, yeah, so I was gonna say, I remember hearing someone say, and this blueprint reference, can you can use it as hip hop or history or whatever, but some of us from our era felt like we weren't handed the blueprint, right? To be able to move forward per se. And, and I feel that some young people might feel the same way. And it seems like we're continuing this gap of not bridging, ensuring that we're bridging these gaps for some type of continuity.
1: Yeah. See, I have a jaded sense of that. You know, <laughs> when I, by the time I finished my, you know, my, my my senior year of college, my first year of graduate school, I had already spent a lot of deep quality been in deep quality conversation with Nayim Akbar, with Hakim Adabuti, with Maulana Karenga. You know what I mean? And so I feel like I had created a relationship with some of these folks. And then, of course, when I went to work at Third World Press, that just only deepened. You know, yeah, I spent I know. a lot of time with Paul Coates a, a Black classic press. Um, I spent, you know, I edited Francis Chris Welsing's book, The ISIS Papers. I, mm. I I edited um, Gil Scott-Heron's book, So Far So Good, and spent a lot of time with Gil Scott-Heron. So I feel like because of my relationship with High Key, I got, got to know people like Sonia Sanchez, Gwendolyn Brooks, um, uh, Amiri, Amiri Baraka, Mari Evans. So like I feel like I had access to all these people. And I also had access to some unknown soldiers who were very active in the Black Power movement, and one of the things that they would say to me is you don't have to just read this history
2: these people are still here <laughs> go find them go talk to them you're an anomaly though like i was from yeah. the suburbs of cleveland yo like what who is who is you know what i mean like that's not where hip hop a brother from cleveland that was over a part beat. of me his Bee, name? Or, or no we in hip-hop it was silver b but in terms of politics well, well, we had some, first, yeah, I know I we was had some of that. the first the, the stokes brothers we had a lot of stuff going on with the like in terms of people who were like you know like big in history but like right. i don't they were like do they realize that we they were on a pedestal for us you know what i mean Yeah, like, you know it's funny because i'm
1: thinking of max stanford I can't remember what he he changed his name, but he was one of the founders of the Revolutionary Action Movement. These were serious brothers from Cleveland that were deep into uh, 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 the more radical wing of the Black Power Movement. And, um, you know, so... That's who I was looking for when I came to Cleveland. (laughs) And actually he gave us a lot of feedback when we were organizing the national hip hop political convention. Mm. So, you know, I feel like I've always kind of sought these elders out because many of them are underutilized. Yes, And so, I mean, I would say to young people, if any of them are, are tuning in here, you know, if you're part of the contemporary movements, I mean, you know, Reaching out and being in conversation with the elders about these past movements, I think is just an essential part of, of what we have, have to do.
0: Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit more about uh,
1: your Hakeemada
0: abilities, the third world press influence on your examination of, of, of music, hip hop music, rap music. You know, you did mention a, a little bit about the kind of, there's one Hakeemada that uh, we all know was part of, a major part of the Black Arts uh, Movement. So, how, how did that play a role in your
1: in your and uh, your analyzing? Um, yeah, that's a good that's a good question. I mean, I feel like when I came to Third World Press and I was working at Third World Press, I mean, I was fascinated to be have all this access to 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 our history. I mean, like Haki, was such a pivotal figure. And he just knew so many people, man. Like I remember um, one time Haki, and Haki would tell you to do stuff. And you'd be like, man, why has he got me doing this? So one time he had me, he's like, I want you to come out to my house on Saturday and and I need your help. So I'm like, what does he want me to do? (laughs) So I get out there he's pulling all of these books out in his garage. And so he's like, I need you to help me dust these books off. I got all these books. Hockey has so many books at the press. He had as many books at home. And so I'm sitting there, you know, clean, we're cleaning these books. This must have taken about five or six hours. We're going through all these books. He's like, put the duplicates over there. You know, sometimes he had full five duplicates. I remember he gave me a copy of The Choice by Samuel yet that day. <laughs> but going so i'm going through this stuff i'm putting these books over here he's like just he's like you see the duplicates put them over here so after that he goes through the duplicates pulls one of each copy and gives them to me so i mean that's the type of mentor he was Mm -hmm. um and is um but also you know i can remember being at third world press we spent a lot of time looking at who was reading our books We spent a lot of time researching who was reading these, who was, and and a lot of times it wasn't our, it wasn't my generation. Mm. And so it became clear to me that I had to be where my generation was. And where my generation was, was hip hop. And what what was happening in hip hop in my generation in the written form, the world of ideas was the Source Magazine. Mm -hmm. And so that, um, and I remember um, the person that made that crystal clear to me was Lerone Bennett. Wow. And, you know, in Chicago in those days, like, we would see, like, Sam Greenlee, Lerone Bennett, Anderson Thompson, uh, Hannibal Afrique, Jacob Carruthers. I mean, these brothers was just walking around. They were around. They were around everywhere. You, see, right. them everywhere. Right. you see them at the, uh, you see them in Malcolm X, uh, Malcolm X uh, Park. You, I mean, you just saw these brothers around. And so one day I'm talking to Lerone and he says to me, I'm asking him about Ebony and his journey with ebony and i'm like and he can tell where i'm going with this he's like you need to go wherever your generation is with this with with the writing and so he said you don't need to be at ebony you need if it's the source you need to be at the source and so that kind of set me set me on this path to 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 be at the source so i think that was some of the overlap but i mean, like watching high key work and watching the range of the entire black world that he knew people all over the world would come to visit high key, um, from from around the world one of his good friends was kara petzi Silly, who was a south african uh poet lauret he passed a few years ago ironically he's the father of the rapper earl sweatshirt a lot of people don't know that um so so you, he has that poetic pedigree from his father that he brings into his hip hop lyricism. Um so 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 yeah so there's that. And then people like Sterling Plump who I who I met who was really deeply into the blues and stuff. I mean, they just start to give you an appreciation for um the the intersection of music mm-hmm. and 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 knowledge and information and and spirituality and just how we begin to transform our communities and transform and impact our people in in a more positive uh, way.
2: So if young, so if young Bakari was walking up to you and was like, I want to write and I want to be on the scene. Is is it source? Where is it now? It's online, right? I don't think it's the
1: source. I mean, you know, it's funny because one of the, I've been thinking about that. It feels like One of, I think there are multiple arenas, but one of the arenas right now is the podcast. Uh. Um, I don't know how that translates to the written word, but it's definitely a gateway, I think, Mm -hmm. for knowledge. I don't think that we've figured it. I don't think that people figured it out yet. Most of the people that are in the podcasting arena that do hip hop aren't as interested in the written word as a vocation. But they do, I think they see the written word as a place to make more money. (laughs) So someone like a Charlemagne the God, he does have books, you know what I mean? He is in the podcasting space, but I don't really think that he see, he has seen books as a knowledge system.
2: Or Um, has, has he been, does he, could he recognize though that he has the power to lead folks to books? I think he definitely, I think he, definitely recognize
1: that I mean he now also has a, a book imprint
2: right um
1: which published they published um Tamika Mallory's book uh state of emergency and I believe they published in another book from I don't know what else they published but yeah so that I think that's something that's happening but I still think that there's an information gap in terms of look the the what they were able to accomplish in the black power movement was unprecedented for, for, for our people in terms of of, of, of of societal transformation. The black power movement and the rise of black studies transformed the entire American, the American uh, 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 college and university system. I mean, absolutely transformed it. Never will be the same again as a result of it. Um, and so I just think that what they were interested and invested in was capturing the history that we had, the documented history of Black folk that had been already written as far back as they could go and to set set us on a path for how to continue to use it into the future. I mean, like, it was just like, and these were young people, these were young people. Many of them hadn't even had PhDs yet. So it's just like that power and influence that they recognize the work that people like that were doing in the activist arena, like like Asada Shakur, like Afeni Shakur, like Matulu Shakur, Sekou Odinga, etc. I mean, like these these people were serious. Um, I mentioned Geronimo Pratt. One of the things he talked to me about was uh, when I did that interview with him. He talked to me about about uh, Bunchy Carter and Bunchy Carter's ability. To transform the slawsons gang into a revol into a revolution into revolutionaries. You know what I'm saying? Like that stuff is very powerful. And I think it's a period that we have to revisit and not not take take lightly and think about what lessons are still there for us now. And I think we're really in a moment in which the consciousness has been raised Damn. and people are looking for information. And we gotta figure out, we got a short window of time to figure out how to get it to them. For me. My my, my uh, contribution where I'm hoping to make this impact is with this Nipsey Hustle uh, uh, project. Um, the book is called Higher, mm-hmm. uh, the philosophy and opinions of, of Nipsey Hustle and should be out in 2024.
2: So he has the thing, unless I can tie this to Nipsey Hustle too. So it's great that you right. <laughs> has a has a uh a beeline to Africa, right? He he speaks, you know, like and, and people aware of this. we we, and we're talking about access we could immediately through zoom skype whatever have this access to africa and have this tie that we only had through print resources and whoever before who's making the connection i'm just starting to hear folks say we need to have ties to africa you know like yeah 16 you know like all the the you know like the sixteen nineteen project and all that is, is making us really think about these things. But right. who's actually bridging that gap to say, "Look, we have an easier access now."
1: Yeah, that's that's a that's a good question. That's a. I mean, I think that there are people out there that are um, that are talking about it. People like Greg uh, Greg Carr and, and and others. But I still feel that there's a disconnect between the people that have resource, serious resources, and serious influence, I, I feel like it's different now. Like, I feel like when we were coming up, there was a respect for these knowledge centers and we, we, res- we respected a black leadership. And there was a black leadership class in every area of, of human knowledge. Mm-hmm. And we would, res- we would respect and gravitate to those knowledge centers. I feel like now, people feel their knowledge centers in and of themselves and they may mm. not even know as much. <laughs> right. They're still willing to you know, platform themselves because that's kind of what happens in this, like the, the social media market is a capitalist market. And wow. I feel like the second that we accept that our future is in capitalism, I think that we're already defeated before we even started. And I feel like that's what's running things now. People talking, even when people are talking about generational wealth, it's really a capitalistic idea that they're really advancing. They're not, they're not talking about the people are more important than me as an individual. Right. <laughs> you know what, right. what I'm saying? <laughs> that, that's not the orientation. So I feel like it's a lot of work to be done. Even as we've make, we're making gains, I feel like we're also taking huge hits I mean, just think about it, when, let's say it's 19, um, 1989, 90, 91, you could be in any, almost any city in the country without social media. And if, and if you knew that uh, Dr. Ben, John Henry Clark, Ivan yeah. Van Sardama, Francis Chris Welsing, Linda Myers, uh, um, and others were, were coming to town for a conference you knew you had to be you had to be there because you was about to really get hit upside your head with so much knowledge that was going to completely transform your worldview and I feel like that we don't have that now and even where we do have it the most fierce of our intellect is not being lifted up in the way that it was in, in those days. That to me is where we're where we're losing. You got so many people pushing themselves, pushing their friends, mm-hmm. but not pushing our our most serious and strongest intellects that, that are really trying to take us somewhere and not telling us, get the bag, get the bag, get the bag. I'm so sick of people saying that. <laughs> They're telling us, they, they were telling us you have to be a knowledge center unto yourself if we're going to free ourselves as Black people.
2: What is your angle for, for your Nipsey uh, research and your your theme? Like, wow. what are you looking at on that one? Hmm. How much can I talk about? <laughs> um. The
1: Nipsey book, there is a book out on Nipsey Hustle by a writer named uh, Rob Kenner. Ironically, Rob Kenner was the editor of XXL when I was the editor of, of The Source. Um. Rob Kenner's book does a great job of capturing the, the, you know, what a music history would do. You know what I mean? So he goes through the albums, he goes through the producers, the the people who, influ- who are engaging Nipsey Hussle as a, as an artist, I'm more interested in Nipsey Hussle as a black man. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm more interested in in Nipsey Hussle as a as a the potential to build pan Africanism. I'm more That's interested in Nipsey Hussle as a person who is advocating black love, black family, parenting, and a, co- a collective uh, black uh, economic enterprise between a generation of black folk who are who are uh entertainers celebrities athletes to better use their power beyond themselves. So I mean like that's that's yeah. what I'm interested in. That's really kind of what What, and I'm I'm interested in, like I feel like a lot of what Nipsey Hussle talked about in his lyrics about his story was a a a self-creation uh narrative. You know, you know people always talk about the autobiography of Malcolm X for example, that Malcolm X told us the story about himself that he wanted us to know, right? I feel like Nipsey Hussle told us the story about himself that he wanted us to know. I feel like the Rob Kenner book lifts that history up. I feel like media has lifted that that narrative up. I'm interested in finding the other narratives about Nipsey Hussle that we don't know.
2: Yeah, create that philosophy and framework. I see that being a way of looking for these young folks to get activated in community. I think so. Making that collective that you were talking about instead of this individual mindset. It's hard
1: hard though, it's hard because capitalism is very persuasive, it's very seductive, Mm -hmm. and everybody wants to live the good life. (laughs) You know, uh, one of my favorite writers is Vijay Prashad. I was watching him, uh, he's an international studies professor. I was watching him give a talk in which he said, we don't we're not we're not mad at uh we don't want to get rid of first class we just want to get rid of we just don't want nobody in second class (laughs) we want to get rid of coach (laughs) (laughs) so i think that that's an interesting way of thinking about uh how we upend uh capitalism not so much you know everybody got to be in coach but can we get everybody in first class (laughs) <laughs> so, Kari, uh uh we are up on the 7
0: o'clock or 8 o'clock hour. Yes, here. we are. Yeah. My goodness. Yeah. Yes. It has been a, a very uh, delightful conversation, very knowledge-based. We appreciate you for what you've done. Uh, anything you, you want to close us out with? You know, because we are in Black we are in Black Music Month, but we also, you shared with us, and I was, I'm glad we went to the direction of the. The political activism that's associated with black yeah. music—you know—you mentioned people like James Brown, Shaka Khan, and all those songs. You know, we, people forget about James Brown's songs. I don't want nobody giving me nothing.
1: Hey, <laughs> loud! You know, I James James Brown in many ways is almost like fundamental to hip hop. Like so many artists sampled James Brown, you know, back in those earlier days. So it's fundamental. Um, other, other, uh, man, I'm just thinking of so. I feel like we just really scratched the surface. I mean, um, yeah. I wanted to mention that I started an organization with Dave Mays called the Hip Hop Political Education Summit in 2020. We did two major uh, virtual summits. One was uh, the Hip Hop Political Education Summit on voter suppression. That was in September of 2020. Then we did a second one in November, the Hip Hop Political Education Summit on black men and the vote, and so we talked about Ice Cube and his uh, agenda uh, agenda for Black America. I remember was that something, was that what it was called? Whatever. Well, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so and so we talked about a lot of that stuff, and I feel like there was so much. We t- we brought so many personalities in. Dame Dash was a part of it. Um, brothers from Brand Nubian were a part of it. Professor Griff was a part of it, and so I feel like we got really kind of deep into some of the music but also really kind of the, the the heart of where where people are. But so many books, I feel like Patrick, man, I feel like I didn't talk, enough, talk about enough books. Oh. Um, um, okay, wow. Hang on a little Why? longer. Hang on yeah. a little longer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there, there is a hip hop book on music that I think is fundamental. Two of them. One is 100 books of uh, the 100 best albums of hip hop written by... Um, Oh my goodness. I'm trying to remember what his name is now. It's written by Oliver Wang. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's a great, that's a great book. And the other one I wanna mention is a book written by Dan Chanez. Dan Chanez has a new book out on uh, Jay Dilla. I haven't read that yet, but his book on uh, the history of Def Jam. What a powerful book about the history of hip hop through the lens of, of, of Def Jam. I think that's must reading for anybody trying to do serious work on on, on, on hip hop and Look, your question? I pulled something some from my shelf,
2: give her some props <laughs> on black feminism. Yeah, and absolutely. To this day. She changed my whole mindset. That book changed my whole mindset.
1: Yes, that's a great book by Joan, Joan Morgan, one of my best friends. She also oh had a God. book that she put out on Lauren Hill, Hill. um, uh, which is a brilliant brilliant book and and what what was striking about that book to me patrick was the way in which i had i have never in my life read a book from such a black woman perspective that it made me realize how many books i read from a male perspective not realizing the book was written from a male perspective right that, that's right. one of the genius things that she did with that book what a brilliant book 25 mm-hmm. years uh what is it 25th it was on the 25th and the 20th anniversary of the miseducation of lauren hill what a brick uh, the book is called um she begat this yes. what a brilliant brilliant book
2: she ended the aspects of colorism like yes. feminism in today's yeah. world like music yes. all that Please bring tell her to come back out. We need her. Yeah, tell she's doing like doctoral work. Tell her come she's, on. No, she's
1: finished her she's finished? PhD. Awesome. She teaches at NYU, okay. and she's very active. Um, you know, I spend I work with a lot with Joan. People are constantly trying to get her to do things, but she's so busy with her with her work as a professor. She often she often doesn't have time, time to do it all, but she's definitely lecturing and she's out there. People want to see her. wanted to come speak she's out here doing
2: the thing i I just learned this over this weekend that in terms of voter registration and things like that we're doing things too late like we Mm -hmm. need to be growing these young folks and growing them in spaces like libraries and things like that so that we can have better access to information like you were saying and um people like you you know like so what could we do to like you know, get folks like you, you know, like these, these kids are hanging in libraries in the summer. Mm -hmm. That's the cool spot where the air conditioning is. That's where all the music and books and computers are where they can go and get the beats and all this stuff. If it's not on their phones, like how can we, you know, like mobilize the library as a space because it's free, it's open. It has your books. It has the thought.
1: Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I know here in Cleveland, and you know, because you were here, <laughs> that Cleveland Public Library is very aggressive about bringing hip hop artists. I remember RZA was, was here. RZA uh, was here speaking on his book, um, the, the, the Tower of the Woo, that came out in 2014, I think. Another great book on hip hop by, by just just a brilliant way that he weaves together hip hop history the, his spiritual centers um of of the shaolin uh, temple as well as the 5 percent nation as well as you know like a fierce kind of street consciousness um so yeah i mean i think that those i i encountered him at a library you know what i mean mm-hmm. um so i think the library definitely should there's so many artists right now who have books out like rick ross and I mean, I, I hope the libraries will bring those guys out. I mean, I think it's definitely a conversation starter. I've done a number of things at libraries with uh, uh, here in, in Cleveland with uh, Michael Eric Dyson um, with some of his works around Tupac and and, and others around hip hop and some not hip hop. But definitely, I think that's a place to go. And I think if if libraries can Reimagine the spaces. I mean, reimagine the conversations. It doesn't have to be a hip hop artist one on one with you know talk, one artist talking about his book. It could be. I used, I did a big program at Harvard with Cornel West. It was me, Cornel West, and Rakim, and they were, and Ra- And Cornell West added so much richness to the conversation around the history of music. And then him and 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 uh, and Rakim kind of went back and forth. So the they, the Dan Chana's book is called The Big Payback. I just remember that.
0: Yeah, The Big Payback.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, hey, Picard, thank you uh, again. I know Tiffany had,
0: both of us had a lot more questions we could ask you, but I have uh, you you one more question. <laughs> yeah, one
2: more. Can you just um, give some words of knowledge to these young Black males out here in terms of literacy and political activism that you would like to impart upon them or something to think about as we move forward in this space man,
1: i mean i I think one of the things that I see a lot of that is that is uh frightening to me is the social media space in which capitalism is worshipped, you know is is absolutely worship. The get the bag thing is the is a, is just the smallest part of it, you know. You have so much conversation around these cryptocurrencies and flipping houses and all this stuff, I mean, I think that one of the one of the one of the most important things that we can do is to begin to 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 talk to young people about life, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, like gardening, eating right, you know what I'm saying like you know, um I'm trying to remember who it was that said to me, like everything that you do to your body bad and your 20s and 30s is what's gonna weigh you down in your 40s and 50s, you know what I'm saying? I think that as a young person, you think you're indispensable, you try, and now we got, you know, you got all these like, you know, drug options out here today, which is killing, you know, most of us. I just think that the most important thing that we can do is to focus on life and to recognize that capitalism is imploding, this global economy is imploding, it's imploding here. You see it at the gas pump. You see it in their so-called inflation. It's imploding uh, uh, internationally. You got over forty wars going on, not just Ukraine. Forty wars outside of Ukraine around the world. Many of them are in Africa. And I think that we have to stop chasing these people and their money. It's not the future for Black people. It sure ain't. It's That's a so great point. That's a great point, brother. You know.
0: Uh, a holistic movement is what you're asking young people to do become more centered. And when they're centered, they can, they can be better at analyzing what's happening uh, around them every day. Because, like you said, you're chasing the bag, you're chasing,
1: uh, and chasing this capitalism false system. And Patrick, one of, the, one of the most powerful things about Nipsey Hussle, in my opinion, was his willingness to decide for himself how he was gonna think about how he could change the world. What was his strategy for self and community transformation? That's one of the most powerful things about the brother. He defied everything around him and everything that the music industry was saying and said, you know what? My brain that the creator gave me is strong enough to tell me what to do for me. And that's what I'm gonna do that to me is one of the most important messages of nipsey hustle that's rarely talked about and it's all in his music over and over and over and over and over again
2: yes it's manifesting in kendrick's work too as you see absolutely yep kendrick is on some other stuff i was and i didn't have a chance to go there i hadn't didn't have a chance to go there i wanted to go there let it go go. go. Said,
1: Let's go. <laughs> thank you all for having me.
2: Thank you. Thank good. you so much, Bakari. <laughs> it was our it was our
1: pleasure, brother. Tip,
2: tell, tell them more about the blog where they can check it out. Yes. If you are interested in more information about black males and literacy and political movements and all that stuff, you can visit us at weareherelit.org. We are on Instagram at We Are Here Lit. We are on Twitter at We Are Here Lit come see us share your knowledge let's collaborate let's talk let's let's get this movement going because until we are literate in all those aspects health finance all that kind of stuff where are we so let's start let's let's keep the conversation going
0: all right paper car again thank you so much and we're out of here speak
2: loudly.com
0: you want to check me out the stuff I'm doing with young people on the country my literature it's all there all right everybody please have